cut that out. You're, you're taking the laptop home and you're editing these. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Pod 25. Wow. We are a quarter of a century old. <laughs> That's it, a quarter of a century. Well, the pod is. I feel, I feel, I feel like 25 years older since starting this pod. What are you saying about me? <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, tonight is uh, continuing on, on Cluster B personalities. As we said in the last episode, we actually recorded histrionic and borderline personality episodes together and we just got to chatting and we had we found out that we had quite a lot to say so tonight's episode you're going to hear mainly from amy talking about borderline personality and sort of some of the ins and outs of it it's an incredibly fascinating personality disorder absolutely we could probably do like a full 12 part series on borderline personality and its treatment and if you know anyone who's got it or experienced it or who has worked with it, you'll know the level of uh, difficulties that this population can have. Mm. So it should be very, very interesting. And we're going to follow up this episode with a episode on treatment of borderline personality, which will be really interesting. I'm actually really looking forward to doing the reading for that. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it'll be fascinating. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So before we get started, the the, the usual thing, if you, can, uh, if you like the show, please rate and review the show on Apple podcast or itunes because that really helps people find the show if you want to follow us on twitter we have a website twoshrinkspod.com twitter handle is just twoshrinkspod google anything twoshrinkspod <laughs> that's it that's it. All, all the good stuff is us we've got an ebay account everything <laughs> that's, i'm selling amy's shoes yeah that's it um, you can sell my boot i wonder how much people would pay yeah for. that's it amy's currently in a cam boot no it's not a cam yeah. boot anymore it's a cam walker. Cam walker. Mm, or a moon boot. Or a moon boot. <laughs> Either or. Did my daughter tonight call it like a like a duck bill or something? <laughs> a duck foot. <laughs> a duck foot. Which is perfect because it, it does have a square end and I am treading on everything in a sort of uncoordinated fashion. So it's yeah, great. That's it. You're making it work for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I might keep it. <laughs> does it does it help you like avoid any shopping shopping cues, anything like that? Uh, the main thing that's helped is that everyone gives me the disability seat on the train. Nice, but that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. Oh, and strangers talk to me more. Yep. They'll stop me in the street to ask what I did. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yep. I've, I I once broke my hand. Actually, I had a couple of series of like injuring my hand. Yeah with a bony type in incident and <laughs> yeah and like it was surprising the amount of uh, assistance people would mm. give me yeah. because also because it was like my left hand which is my dominant hand yeah and i was just like just atrocious with yeah. it so it's got to be some perks <laughs> <laughs> well so we digress but we'll, we'll get on we're going to just hand over to amy now and we're gonna have a look good long chat about borderline personality so what people may or may not be aware of is that it's pretty much I'd say the most researched personality disorder out there. There were dozens, hundreds of books and 
research articles and information about it. And I feel like it's becoming more and more well-known publicly. Yeah. Like it didn't used to be talked about in media or in movies or things like that, but there's been a few mentions lately where I've kind of picked up on it. I don't know if you've had the same, noticed the same thing. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. I certainly, I, I, I was thinking about, about my clinical training and thinking I didn't get a good education on borderline personality. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. then whereas like now it's sort of, it's much more talked about. Or yeah. So I thought like we did last week, I'd start with talking through the criteria mm-hmm. and then have a bit of a chat about what it's like in the room, how prevalent it is, that sort of thing. And then some of the controversies because there's a fair amount of that in relation to BPD. Yeah. So. It's this condition that strikes a lot of it has a lot of stigma yeah particularly from healthcare workers Absolutely. and mental health care workers and we'll get into the reasons for that mm. uh, but so yeah we're just trying to provide like an overview of yeah. what's about because it, it, it can be quite complicated once you kind of peel it back so yeah and it's one of those disorders that you could spend weeks talking about <laughs> i think it's i find it quite interesting so essentially the the feel of it is that there's a lot of instability so it's a pattern of instability across multiple different areas relationships sense of self emotions plus then impulsivity so as with all the other personality disorders that we've talked about it starts by early adulthood and is present across the board in any environment it's also like what we talked about last week, you have to have five of the following nine symptoms. Uh, so you can get quite mixed presentations mm. in practice. So the first thing is frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. So this is sort of any time that someone who's a caregiver or someone who, someone with borderline personality disorder is attached to leaves or delays things or looks like they might be leaving there's a real scramble to respond to that. Yep. So, for example, I, I worked with someone once who I she was young and I said to her that I would be 10 minutes late for our appointment and she started hitting her head against the wall. Wow. Because it was so distressing, the idea that there was going to be that separation for longer than what she planned. Yeah. So, it can be things like that. It can be stuff like, like making increasing amounts of contact to yep. make sure that everything's okay yeah um, so, so, a cl- so a classic pattern for that is an individual with borderline personality and then most people who are diagnosed with bpd are female is mm, that right yeah so, three quarters sorry three quarters yeah okay so we'll probably just refer to females just out of because that's sort of clinical experience so often people with bpd if they think that they say their partner is going to leave them mm. or their workplace is going to kick them out or i don't know or, or their therapist, then they'll often amp up in kind of particular kinds of ways. So one of the classic ones will be increased levels of distress. Yeah. So something that encourages people to help them or reach yeah. out to yeah. them. But yeah. and that, the, and the way that I'm describing that sounds manipulative mm. and it comes across as manipulative, but it's not really. No, it's like it's, a, it's not a conscious process. It's probably so that emphasizing that impulsivity that it's yeah. that immediate response. It's not. Yeah. A thought out, I'm going to do this, and then they'll respond in this way. Yeah, they've got no emotional skin, essentially. Mm. Yeah, so. it's very raw. Yeah. 
Yeah. So another symptom is a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships that go between extremes of idealizing and devaluing. Yeah. So one minute someone is the most amazing partner that anyone could ever want and you know there's never been anyone who's so romantic and attentive and all that sort of thing and then the next thing is that they're horrendous to live with and no one could stand Bizarre. them and yeah. yeah. So it it flips between the two mm-hmm. not necessarily in response to what's going on in the environment. So something could be like a missed phone call could switch from idealized to completely devalued rather than things really shifting in the dynamic. Yep. Yep. And so and there's a book that's for patients, patients and family members. It's called I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. Mm. And I think that that kind of encapsulates that. Yeah, it's that sort of push-pull dynamic. Yeah. A warning sign as a therapist that someone may have this uh, set of, symptoms is when they say oh you like after like the first second therapy session they're like you're the most amazing therapist ever yeah you're like yeah, mm, I'm, yeah. Like, I'm good but i'm not that good not gonna, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah what makes you think that now yes yeah 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 another cluster of, of issues is around identity so uh having a really unstable sense of self so this can be things like switching between career paths or interests or the way that they describe themselves. And it's really quick. It's not like, you know, we all sometimes change our minds about those kind of things. It's it's a quick shift between things. And that's probably the thing. other thing about borderline is that all of these things shift really quickly. So we're talking, you know, minutes, hours, days. We're not talking months or, mm. or years. It's mm. sort of a – it's got that fluctuation going and it's the same in terms of a sense of identity uh there's also impulsivity in at least two different areas that are self-damaging so this is things like excessive spending dangerous sexual behaviors substance abuse reckless driving binge eating anything that's kind of got a self-destructive tendency to it and it's at least two of those so just having one doesn't meet the criteria yeah not for the pd yeah And so you can start to imagine like when someone's got these symptoms, that they're quite troubled yeah. and there's a lot of things going on. The, the word that comes to mind is chaos. Mm. Can be. Yeah, absolutely. And as a, as a therapist, you can often feel like, I don't even know where to start. Yeah. And which is probably the way in which the, the, way in which the client feels. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's also recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures or threats or self-mutilating behavior. So you often see self-harm or, and sometimes there's self-harm in response to abandonment or suicide attempts in response to abandonment as well. So they all kind of start to intermingle and overlap. It's sort of a way of the sy- the responding. The criteria, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a way of dealing with that distress. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, self harm is like cutting, burning. Yeah. Poisoning. Uh, poisoning. All those kinds of things, and and mm. women classically will cut themselves as a way of reducing stress for themselves yeah. and things like that. Yeah. And with that one, I think you know when I've worked with men who have had this diagnosis, that's been where the real difference has been in sort of the way that they've harmed themselves. They yeah. tend to do things like punch walls. Hmm. or doors or things like that. Things that involve physical aggression or will just walk up and start a fight with someone in the street or whatever. It's got more of that feel to it than a in private. In private cutting yourself. In private kind of cutting yourself or taking too many tablets, that sort of thing. 
it, there's something about it that, that feels a bit different. Yeah. So when I've worked with men who have had this diagnosis, they've often shown up with bruises or things like that. And that's how I've known that yeah. something's been rough in that week. Yeah. Whereas like my experience has been accidentally catching, mm. seeing something like a mark yeah. and kind of asking about that yeah. or not even really sort of not thinking to ask about it because mm. you might be because you know, they don't mention it and you don't and because often you're because there's that sort of chaos as well there's all sorts of different things going on yeah. when someone walks into the room who've got these symptoms that it's sort of yeah. you could pick anything in a way sometimes and i think yeah. that's the thing that often people like you said don't know where to start yeah but it's yeah there's also instability in mood and so, like I mentioned before, it's really quick. So, it's, you know, within hours, minutes. Flip, um, flip and become very angry. You very know, angry, or? yep. Or pretty much in any direction. So, can all of a sudden become angry or can all of a sudden become excited about something or any sort of change change in mood yep. from, you know, one extreme to the other. And the intensity is what I think you really feel in the room. Yeah. Yep. That That somehow you've gone from having someone in front of you who's sobbing to then laughing yeah. or excited about something and I think that there's like a the, transition or, 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 or someone can be quite placid to quite angry yeah and then and that anger can be about something quite relational relational yeah I think definitely. as a therapist you often pick it up because it'll be there'll be a transference counter transference issues mm. so that's the the client will become angry will be sort of it can be quite seductive towards you mm. but then also quite angry yeah. at you when you wouldn't typically get that from other people yeah and that's often a key thing because mm. people people don't sort of rock in and say well it's unusual if you say for someone to come and say look i've got borderline personality yeah like you're often dealing with something else like i've got a drinking problem or i've got you know depression's often been a way that yeah. someone's or social come anxiety in. yeah yeah absolutely yeah. uh so there's also chronic feelings of emptiness and i feel like that's where i've also seen people present for that of kind of that they assume that it's low-lying depression or something that's i've always felt flat i've always felt that's one that people find hard to describe but that often seems to come through in initial presentations for me anyway I don't yeah know and so you. yeah and so you, so like you as a clinician start treating as depression yeah and then you realize hang on there's all these other things going on yeah around it or the way that therapy's going is different yeah yeah also like you mentioned inappropriate intense anger um or difficulty controlling anger so really quickly switching into anger getting physically physically violent with other people constantly being angry regardless of what's going on all that sort of thing yeah and kind of like being inappropriate yeah. angry like in terms of the intensity or how it's acted out yeah exactly yeah it doesn't match what the circumstances are smashing things breaking things yeah kind of stuff. yeah and then the last one is transient stress related paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms so there's sort of a a tendency when really distressed to either dissociate from the environment or from uh, your body or to have sort of hallucinations or things like that. And mm. so it's sort of, it doesn't last long enough to fit into any of those other yeah. categories of things that we've probably talked about before. It's sort of like everything else. It's quick. It's hours yeah. and days. Yeah. And it's within the context of stress and often relational stress yeah. that then that'll come out. So it's quite... I find it quite an interesting assortment of things because often I think, like you said, you sort of, you end up, someone comes in for one thing or someone else has referred them or things like that. And with 
what that person views as the primary issue. Mm. And then often for me, the first clue that there might be something else going on is that you keep on getting distracted from that issue with other things. And like you often it's lots of crisis kind of things that, that come up. Or, um, or or the work feels really intense, but then you go to write your notes and you're like, I'm not really sure I know what we talked about. Yeah. I don't know that we actually got anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I notice is often that they, patients who've been around for a while on my mm. caseload. Yeah. And you're like, oh, hang on. Mm. Or the other thing I often find is like, they'll be good patients in a way. Mm. They always come. They're really engaged. They're kind of maybe it's a male female thing, mm-hmm. but and I'll kind of quite get along with them yeah. in this kind of interesting kind of way. Like, so there's something different that you feel in the room yeah. than what you would feel otherwise. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it can be pleasurable. Mm. Like, so I mean, you read down that list, and you're like, oh my gosh, that yeah, that could be if you're working with someone who's experiencing all that stuff. You know, that person's gonna be having a hard time, and mm. you as a clinician may be having a hard time as a result because it's all difficult. Yeah. But it actually, the way this presents is because they're worried about abandonment mm. and... There can be a lot of sort of charm and yeah. presenting sort of best self. Yeah. And sort of in that idealizing kind of... Yeah, the idealizing kind well. of way. Yeah. And then that kind of keeps you that keeps you and, and other people in their life drawn, mm. drawn into them. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think... I think the other ways that it's that I've had people refer someone as well is that when, when you mentioned stigma before that people have called and said, I have someone who I'd like you to see. They have this diagnosis. Are you willing to see them? Mm. Which is not the thing that I've had with any other... You don't get that with depression so much, right? <laughs> no. In fact, I haven't... I haven't had it for any other yeah. other disorder. There's kind of there's a bit of trepidation yeah. about We're, taking on someone who know, who's known to have this. What do you reckon the trepidation is for people? I think for a lot of people, it's about risk. Yeah. So if you've got someone who comes in every week talking about that they're feeling suicidal, as a clinician, it can be quite difficult to manage that risk and to know when you need more help when things are okay things like that and so i think often about it's about risk and then i think it's also about that perception of the sort of scrambling to stop you leaving all of that kind Mm. of behavior as manipulative yeah um and so the combination of the two it feels like you're in like a high stakes situation and you might not have control over what's going on and it's a bit chaotic and and particularly if you're a working you know, in an isolated fashion. Yeah, definitely. So like a, a single practitioner, a single clinic or something. Yeah. And, you know, you do have to have good boundaries as a clinician. Yeah. Like know how to not divulge much information about yourself and know how to make sure that sessions run to time mm. and, you know, having good rules around things so that you your presence, like, so that sort of sounds like being a bit mean as a clinician, but really it's about sort of setting boundaries and sort of uh, helping someone contain and role modeling to contain yeah. distress because yeah. they have a lot of distress, you know, yeah. and that's why they're there is to get help for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it can be challenging. What, one interesting way I was going to say about coming across it in the hospital mm. is one thing I think is diagnostic yeah. is that I'll get a staff member on the phone to me and I'll have a long, long conversation with that staff member about what they're worried about with this patient. Yeah. And as soon as as I have that, Mm. 
and I'm not talking like a five minute, I'm talking maybe like a 25 minute, yeah. half an hour phone conversation about all these kind of things that they've been trying to do with this person mm. that's unusual and blah, blah, blah. And then I'll be like, okay, I reckon they've yeah. got, I reckon they've got a cluster B personality, yeah. you know, index suspicion, hyper borderline. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's something that a lot of people respond first that really trying to help. Yeah help the person who's presented because you really do feel that distress you get re- you get really drawn in you get really drawn in by i'm a, in a helping profession and this person's in distress and we need to work this out yeah and yeah absolutely you see that kind of or a whole seeing say someone who presents and you ask them about what other services they're accessing and there'll be a whole long list of different yeah, services right. different professionals and things like that that are all working together or like in community health where every discipline in the health centre will be seeing that person. Yeah. And you, you kind of go, that, that never happens. That yeah. Well, very rarely happens yeah. <laughs> that you end up with someone who's got issues that span everything. Yeah. But there's sort of, yeah, it's that help-seeking. Yeah. And they're, they're nat- people. naturally skilled at bringing people in. Mm. But what's interesting is that they they have other problems that mean that those relationships are unsuccessful. Yeah for want of a better phrase. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the characteristic of this is that often there's sort of a pattern of undermining themselves when they're close to reaching a goal or things are going well or things like that. So a relationship might be going really well and that's frightening and so there's sort of an undermining that that happens or therapy's going well and then you're nearing the end and often then the distress starts to amp up again. Or there's this belief that because I'm doing well... Yeah. Then this anxiety appears because they've got these fears of abandonment mm. and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then one thing that I I guess I haven't really thought about much, but as I was reading through the criteria and stuff like that, was about transitional objects being really common for this group of people. Yeah. And when I read that, it reminded me of all of the different people I've seen who have had had this presentation and have each had something that provides them with more safety than a relationship um so things like a stuffed toy or a particular item of clothing or something like that that's mm. actually more secure than the other stuff around mm. them and it was in the dsm highlighting that as a sort of thing to watch out for so that they might carry that around carry with them that around with them or seek comfort from that more than say turning to a close mm. person nearby that sort of thing which yeah. is interesting so prevalence wise 1.6 to 5.9% of the population, which sounds quite murky. I think most most studies then tend to cite around 2% yeah, right. as an estimation. And it's a lot higher in primary care, health settings, things like that, and then higher again in clinical settings. In like psychiatric settings. In psychiatric yeah. settings. So it's sort of got that stepped I mean, feeling. Yeah, I mean, and that's to do with sort of the complexity, like, you know, people who self-harm a lot. Yeah. You know, and they'll have lots and lots of scars and, mm. and they'll be doing that chronically. Or they... Or the risk side of things. Actively suicidal. Suicidal, then or, it's more like you'll be hospitalised or into that sort of tertiary. Yeah. yeah, and so it's really, it's really, really complicated because you, you can have someone who has recurrent suicidal ideation and we'll talk about that but, you know, and they might have a plan, but they're not doing stuff. But then they can actually be impulsive and actually kind of do it. So judging judging and determining risk is a, is a very complicated mm. skill. Absolutely. And, and even people who do work with this population all the time yeah. would 
uh, so, struggle. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, they're sort of open about you know this is the judgment calls a lot of yeah. the time. So, and often I think that's why this work's done in teams where people can sort of get advice from other people that they're working with to kind of around risk and things like that. Like a whole, we'll talk a little bit about DBT and things like that, but it's very much a team of professionals who in, then in the can ideal, kind of in the, in the ideal, ideal in the ideal world who can be, can sort of check in with one another about risk or yeah. a really clear hierarchy of risk or a really clear safety mm. plan or things like that that can kind of support yeah. figuring that out. But, but what's classic in, I mean, maybe, I don't know if you're going to talk about, but like is a the thing called splitting that mm. can happen. So you can have a team of people working with uh, someone with borderline personality but also the other personality disorders and they can end up, the team can end up being split where one, you know, a portion of the team think that this person is doing really well and deserves much more empathy Mm. and the other part of the team are like fed up, really, really struggling with working with them and stuff like that. And that actually kind of gets to people with borderline personality are like competent Mm. and incompetent but both at the same time. Yeah. Which just gets dialectic. Yeah, it's interesting. It's pretty much extremes in every yeah in everything in every direction every domain yeah so flipping between different things yeah I, I quite like working with borderline yeah. people with borderline personality i, th- I find it very interesting hmm. it's, it's something that I, I want to have better skills at i've always yeah. wanted to have better skills at but yeah. yeah it gets to my own psychology nerdism <laughs> but it's certainly i think it's, it's certainly it's a very interesting yeah, yeah and particularly when particularly on the occasions when therapy runs well Mm. it's a very satisfying group to work with Mm, yeah so i read a fair bit about the etiology of of borderline and i found a amazing article so the article is the etiology of borderline personality disorder bpd contemporary theories and putative mechanisms in current opinion in psychology and it's due to be published in june it's as an like early preview online mm-hmm. in the lead author at the moment Catherine winsper yeah uh, and so what this article does is that it brings together uh, recent research on what might lead to the development of bpd yeah. and sort of summarizes it and then she's developed a flow chart essentially of how these things might go together Mm -hmm. so initially it was thought that childhood trauma was the main thing that led to the development of bpd the problem with that is that even though it's really common in bpd it's really common in a lot of disorders Mm, and you can have bpd without it yep and you can have childhood trauma without bpd so it's not a direct link uh so i'll quickly run you through this because i think it's interesting (coughs) sort of and it probably fits into what we've into the development of a lot of the personality disorders we'll talk about. Yeah. So she proposed that first that there's epigenetic precursors. So this is stuff like family risk that's inherited and then exposure to it prenatally to different hormones, stress hormones and things like that mm-hmm. before birth. And that then influences some sort of biological underpinning. Uh, and then there's infant temperament, which has been found to be quite predictive of BPD in adulthood, which is quite interesting. So like an insecure attachment? Yeah. Well, no, more about kind of like a difficult baby or an irritable baby. So those kind of, yeah. Like difficult to settle or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also abusive or withdrawing caregivers in infancy. 
both of those kind of interplay to have difficulty with co-regulating with someone else. So the first way we learn how to regulate our emotions is by um, responding to a parent, mirroring that and learning how to do it that way. Yeah, attaching to a caregiver. So like if your child is crying... You know, you hold them and then because you're calm, the baby becomes becomes calm. Exactly. But like if that process is disrupted. Yeah. So if say a parent responds with anger every time their child gets upset, then the child learns that that's the response that comes from that emotion. Or I shouldn't get upset. I shouldn't get upset or I can't ask for help or whatever that might be. Yeah. So those things then kind of feed into a pattern which is called emotional cascades which in adolescence and is sort of a core mechanism of BPD where people have trouble with emotional dysregulation but then also the thoughts that they have about that dysregulation and that kind of cycles around and around Mm. so it's sort of about not having the emotional skills but also then the cognitive skills Mm -hmm. and that that can be caused by or sort of enhanced by experiencing abuse or invalidating interactions Mm. so there's nothing that kind of reinforces a positive way of responding to emotions Mm. it sort of just keeps on cycling yeah and and what i've sort of learned was that when someone with bpd is upset Mm. like the the intensity of that internally is that that's the way they've always felt yeah and they can't remember at that moment they can't remember other times like yeah. they don't have access to it's just sort of a flooding it's like they're completely yeah. flooded with it yeah and so sort of the normal like for the average person of being able to like I'm angry but I, okay maybe I can be talked to a little bit to calm yeah. it yeah it is not going to work you sort of can't all. see any way out of yeah. that feeling yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, so then those kind of patterns then underlie a bunch of adolescent traits that develop. So there's interpersonal issues like problems with peers, things like that, early relationships. There's cognitive patterns, so feeling helpless, dissociation, things like that. Um, Emotional tendencies, so feeling shame, anger, those kind of things. Behavioural, so you might start using self-harm or substances to regulate. Yeah, but also like, you know, be sexualised in their relationships, get themselves into unhealthy relationships, which then sort of perpetuate feeling bad about oneself and then say, because they're impulsive and things like that, like get in trouble at school. Absolutely. Because they, you know, they can't sit still in class or something like that. Yeah. You know, know, or they're, they're too busy focusing on their relationship yeah. that they're worried about ending. Yeah. So they can't manage the yeah. multiple kind of demands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So all those things kind of combine and merge together and they kind of highlight that that doesn't necessarily mean if you tick all of those boxes, it doesn't mean that you automatically develop borderline. But it's likely that if you've had all of those things that you will probably experience some kind of psychological distress in sort of late adolescence, mm. early adulthood, that there's there's enough basis there to have difficulty with your emotions or have difficulty in relationships, that sort of thing. Mm. But that all of those things together have been found in research. Each of them have been shown to have a relationship mm-hmm. with the development of borderline and perhaps that's how they fit together. Yeah, right. And they talk a lot about how there's in a lot of the research that I found around that there's no one thing that predicts whether you develop borderline, mm. but that there are some things that are have a bit of a higher predictive <laughs> thing than others. So self-harm in adolescence is one that's got quite a strong 
predictor, predictor yeah. substance misuse in adolescence, being diagnosed with something like ADHD or conduct disorder, something that's kind of behaviorally mm-hmm. disruptive in adolescence, infant temperament, and mm. then showing symptoms of BPD in childhood and adolescence. Mm. So you can't be diagnosed with it until you hit... Yeah. 18 but already having those kind no, of patterns all, all, all i would say as a clinician like all of those predictors are just kind of baby predictors of bpd yeah. so it's not really surprising that you've no. got them no like as a yeah like, that oh, you would have short, that later he was a short he was short as a kid and he's short as an adult yeah. like you know it's like well it kind of it kind of makes sense it, it doesn't doesn't tell you why someone is Sure. No. Or why someone's got BPD. No, but it moves away from that kind of there is one cause of BPD. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, multiple. I, I wonder, not being a BPD researcher yeah. and not being, I've certainly had my share of clients with BPD, mm. but I'm, you know that's not the group I work with solely. But I would wonder whether part of the problem is that you, it's such a heterogeneous group. Yeah. So five of nine, there's lots of different ways you can get to five. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, it's not all the same disorder. No, exactly. In a way. Yeah. Like, and that's one of the controversies about how diverse it is. Part of the, I don't know if you saw the proposed an additional diagnosis that may reduce the amount of sort of overdiagnosis that tends to happen with BPD of developmental trauma disorder. Oh, okay. So that was proposed before the last DSM-5. Yeah. Um, and there's an article by Bessel van der Kolk that I can whack on the list yeah. that argues for it. And I think a lot of people who work with trauma are really excited about the possibility of this coming in because it, it describes a cluster of, of symptoms that develop from trauma but don't meet the criteria for BPD but don't meet the criteria for PTSD either. So kind of mm. a, this mid-ground where there's a couple of risk-taking behaviours, but it's not as many to meet BPD. Mm. And it's kind of, it captures more accurately the experience of someone who's had long-term trauma and how they've responded. Mm. Um, and it was sort of proposed as a way of dealing with the fact that sometimes people are diagnosed with BPD when they don't quite meet the threshold. But yeah. it's sort of like, well... They fit into this better than anything else. Yeah. Or, or they get lumped, frequently yeah. people get labelled with it. Like, yeah. So particularly, and, and particularly like someone who self-harms will go, like people just go, oh, they're borderline. Yeah. Or someone who's like attempted to kill themselves. Yeah. And, and it's sort like, of uh, and particularly it's quite a, flippant. Particularly if it's a, a woman who is a bit, you know, loud, brash, mm. uh, dramatic, can get labelled and who's attempted to hurt themselves yeah. can get labelled as borderline. And that doesn't necessarily fit. But, but actually could just be that they're just depressed. Yeah. Well, or they're really distressed in that in that moment yeah. and it's they've been given a diagnosis based on one yeah. contact yeah. or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And I, 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 yeah, so it's quite a – I feel like it's quite a controversial thing to work with, controversial diagnosis to get. Yeah. It's – there's a lot of tension around it. Yeah. So long-term outcomes – people tend to fluctuate over time. Some research has shown that by 10 years post having some treatment, about half of people will recover. So they'll not meet the criteria anymore and they'll have good social functioning. And then then there's a group that have a period of remission, but then they relapse. And so about a third of people who remit then have a relapse. So Mm -hmm. it kind of fluctuates in long-term patterns and tends to reduce as people get to elderly age groups mm. tends to drop so mm. yeah what 
Do you have numbers on stats of self-harm or um, completed suicide or something like that? I don't have them, but it is far more far more common. Yeah. Actually, in terms of suicide, it's really hard to know because the recording of diagnoses post-suicide isn't done well. Yeah. So it's quite hard to know, except except that we know that it's high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, it depends on which way you look at it, which is yeah. that if you've got a population of, if you look at the whole population yeah. of people who kill themselves yeah. and then try and work out which ones of those had yeah. borderline personality, it's difficult. Mm. But if you're working with a population of borderlines yeah. per se, it's known that they have a high risk of suicide because yeah. they can often, they can be chronically suicidal and yeah. actually succeed. Or they it can, can also be accidental. Accidental. So, yeah. so they can be, they can be making suicidal gestures because yeah. they're very, very distressed. Yeah. And, but then they actually succeed. Yeah. And then also they can be impulsive as yeah. well. Yeah. There, there's lots of avenues that that could, that could take. Like yeah. it's, yeah, it's not a black and white kind of thing with that. And I think that's part of that uncertainty around risk. Like if you've got someone who's chronically self-harming, yeah. they're automatically at greater risk of suicide. And then you add in the suicidality yeah. and that ups it again. And yeah. you add in attempts and yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, very difficult. And if you know someone that's got borderline personality uh, or borderline personality traits, yeah. like it's very emotionally draining mm. and very, very difficult. You need need your own support. And, and clinicians who work with BPD really... Need like, support. Yeah, you need support. And, and team approach is really, mm. really good. I don't know much about medication for BPD. There's really not... They're doing a couple of trials at the moment, but their medications tend not to work from my understanding like um, yeah they don't they're not the be all and end all. no because what tends to happen is that often things like antidepressants are prescribed but their mood isn't low all the time yeah so they might be suicidal all the time but the mood doesn't match and so that sort of doesn't work and ends up with people a bit flattened or things like that yeah. or the other way and so a lot of a lot of the times it's just prescribing things like temazepam to help reduce anxiety in a moment of a yeah, you know, intense distress. Yeah, if needed. But I know that some of the treatment approaches that we'll talk about next time ask that you come off any medication yeah, right. like that before you go on it because it's seen as that you need to learn how to manage those emotions without help of drugs, alcohol, prescription drugs, yeah. anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of recorded and discouraged. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that you take those things. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I like. I, I feel that I could talk about borderline personality for hours. Me too. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure I feel like I've given my description of it. I think it's it's like as in, like I'm not sure what, what my description would be. I mean, I think culturally, you'd, like I was trying to think of something, like I read in a text that I've not actually seen the movie, but Fatal Attraction mm. and, and Glenn Close's character in Fatal Attraction. Yeah. It sort of demonstrates some... BPD yeah. traits and celebrity wise like I'd heard that Courtney Love who mm. was married to Kurt Cobain yeah. had sort of demonstrates that that kind of I mean yeah. you're thinking about someone that can flip wildly between loving yeah. and hating you pushing yeah. they like you and then they push you away yeah. they get very very angry if you leave or yeah. get very very stressed quite reckless yeah yeah and, and kind of yeah and kind of like perplexingly kind of get themselves into trouble yeah and i think you know one of the big things of this in knowing when 
you might be dealing with this particular disorder is that indefinable thing that's in your gut (laughs) that you feel unsettled and you feel like there's something going on that you're unaware of that it's sort of or that, something out of control. Or that or, this person is always in your head as a clinician when yeah, you go home yeah. and you're constantly thinking about them. Yeah. Their sort of investment is different. Yeah. 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 Willingly or unwillingly. Yeah. I think in terms of media portrayal, there's recently been a TV series called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which has been going for a few seasons, but the main character has recently been diagnosed with borderline. Yeah. And I think they've portrayed it quite well. Like especially right from her diagnosis onwards, they've yep. captured a range of different symptoms. They even list the DSM criteria in one of the episodes. No way. Yeah, and it's focused on her therapy and what that might involve. So it's quite, it's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, and also the relationship with her friends and the people around her, dealing with this diagnosis and making sense of how they've felt around her before. Yeah. So, mm, yeah. Interesting. So what we will do a pod on treatment of borderline yep. personality because I think it. Deserves, deserves, it, deserves its own sort of section. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. So, I'm so being we're kicked out of Hunter's house. <laughs> so we're Too much a... frivolity. Oh. <laughs> okay. So... So this is the part where we have a break, we're having a break, and uh, if you are listening, binge listening to Two Shrinks Pod, you'll notice that the previous episode's break bit, Amy rambled a lot, whereas I'm going to do it professionally and tell you that what you need to do, if you like our show, please subscribe to us on your podcast app, you can leave a rating, or you can even write a written few, that would be fabulous, because the more people who do that, the more people will find the show, ratings. The more people will settle our arguments on Twitter. That's it. Can't let that go. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we also have a website and twoshrinkspod.com. We have links to articles that we talk about during the episodes and things like that if you are wanting to know more about it. But yeah, and please do email us. Please get in contact with us. We certainly enjoy having listener feedback and suggestions for the show. All of that is correct. All of that is correct. See, I did it. That, that was really quick. Yeah. Do you feel good? You look so <laughs> unsatisfied. You're like, you're trying to trying to find a way to get me upset. It's like, no. No, I know that you need this. It's okay. Two shrinks spot. Okay, we are back from our break. We have both drunk Milo and we are feeling comforted and ready to go. That's it. Well, it was such a professional break, that one, wasn't it? Possibly. <laughs> Let's say yes. <laughs> so we finish up, as always, with the things we came across article. Tonight it's just Hunter. And so should I just hand it over to you? Yeah. Tell me things. So this is our kind of lighter side of segment of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So um, I was inspired to think about knitting how did you end up there? So uh, I got uh, on Twitter, uh, a follower, um, Knitter PhD, had said that they'd checked out the pod. Yep. And and so I was like, oh, that's an interesting Twitter handle. And so, mm. and, so and they're into knitting. Yep. And so I thought, oh, knitting. Let's plug that into the, the scientific. No, no, I've never knitted. My um, nana 
when I was a child, she this thing that all of her grandchildren, regardless of gender, should learn how to knit, sew, and cross stitch. Mm-hmm. And so she taught each one of us how to do that. And <laughs> so all of us know how to do it. I don't even know that you. Well, I know what sewing is, like, but cross stitch. You know, it's got like like that white mesh. Oh yeah, and. You sew a pattern. Mm, and you meant to sort of do it by like a window where there's like lots of light coming through. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. But. Maybe in a rocking chair or something. Yeah. 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 yeah with an eider down quilt over your lap. I mean, that's how I did it. But <laughs> 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 anyway, continue. <laughs> I was always interested because I would see my mother uh, knit. Mm. Um, it's quite relaxing. She was quite good at starting. Mm. Not good at finishing yeah. stuff off. Anyway. Yeah, that's so, me. It's the bit where you have to join stuff together. You kind of go, really? I, I've got put all this effort in, but do I have to do that? So, so if, you, if, you, if you whack knitting into scientific search engines, mm. it's quite interesting. Mm. Uh, so I've got, I've got a couple is of... Is it psych-based in general or is it more about like the mechanics? So I, I came across an article on... The Motivations for Participation in Knitting Amongst Young Women mm-hmm. by Casey Stannard is the lead author mm-hmm. and that is in Clothing and Tex- Textiles Research Journal uh, 2015. And I also came across a the knitting community-based trial for older women with osteoarthritis of hands, mm. design and rationale of an RCT. So it's like they're going to do an RCT and that the lead author of that is Paulette Guitard. And it's in BMC mus- musculoskeletal disorders, 2018. Mm. So I'll talk a little bit about those, but the other thing that kind of comes up when you're looking at in PubMed and you type in knitting is you like yeah. scrolling down, it's like, you know, there's things about knitting communities and, you know, blah, blah, blah knitting a craft connection. And then there's a series of, um, of medical journals articles, which is penetrating trauma of the thoracic or aorta caused yeah. by a knitting needle. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like, there's lots of those. There's lots. And there's a lots of surgery related was, kind yeah, of knit, knitting things together. together. Yeah, That's yeah, where yeah. I thought yeah. you were going to go, like knitting tissue together. Yeah, and also like kind of stuff about uh, you know, knitting super, super molecules together. And was like the um, thoracic injury, was it deliberate? I, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I didn't think I needed to go there. Like, I, was it an enraged knitter? Who look, I can click. I can click on the abstract while we're talking <laughs> and have a look. Should we? Loading, loading, abstract not available. Ah, the mystery remains <laughs> and, unsolved. And the annals of thoracic surgery, twenty seventeen. Um, <laughs> so, I'll start off with the motivations of participation for knitting amongst mm-hmm. young women. So, do you do you knit? Uh, that was uh, that was going to be my leading question. Well, I go through phases. Yes. So every now and then I'm always doing something creative and something with my hands while I do other things yep. at home, always. Yeah. And it just then depends on what it is at a particular time. So you do knit? I, I go through periods. Yeah, where, right. Where I, the last thing I knitted was a blanket that has not, not been sewn together, <laughs> but the blanket is finished in pieces. <laughs> I, I had a housemate who he had been traveling overseas, returned home, had no money. Yeah. Christmas was coming. He had a lot of time on his hands. Yeah. And he like crocheted a quilt. Yeah. Made a quilt for his girlfriend. Yeah. They, 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 they got married. Yeah. So, you know, so obviously the quilt worked. Worked, yeah. But I remember because he, 
he binge watched Lord of the Rings <laughs> whilst right. whilst he was doing it because he needed something that was like long, so he yeah. had to get up. And then he, and then so he watched them all, and then he watched them all with the director's commentary <laughs> on. It was, it was, That's great. It was, I love it. Was it. It's a perfect nerdy kind of com- combination. Really yeah, there. and then like you know, like twelve hours of, of film or yeah. something. Anyway. I think the thing is though that now wool is so expensive that it's not actually a cheap hobby to have. Oh really? I didn't know that wool was expensive. Yeah, like if you compare to say just going and buying a blanket yeah, of right. a really good quality or something like that like it's more expensive to buy the amount of wool you need there are a few places less like less manly and more feminine than like a sewing store like like i feel a field trip coming on we can <laughs> we can monitor your responses only if we can go to a star wars um figurine shop oh, I mean. <laughs> oh, they don't have harry potter figures i had a look or well, their selection of them are very poor. Anyway, knitting. Let's talk knitting. So, in the Motivations for Participation mm-hmm. article, knitting has undergone significant and somewhat surprising revival in the new millennium. Mm-hmm. Once viewed as grannies participating in a domestic chore, knitters are shedding the stereotype and are knitting on New York City subways, in crowded pubs, and other trendy places. Yep. So, in a recent survey by the Craft Yarn Council of 5,000 knitters and crocheters, they had 18% of all respondents were aged 18 to 34. So I won't go through in detail this very, very well referenced yeah. and thorough um, qualitative research study, but they talked about you know clearly there's a, a growth in knitters in this little scholarly attention to understanding the motivations of knitters and the artifacts they create. Yeah. So historically speaking, they sort of talk about many spikes in popularity and participation in knitting. What mm-hmm. do you reckon? Uh, in the last two decades yeah. might have been an event that might be have been uh, ascribed to triggering a resurgence in knitting in the United States. Like a... An event. A big event. I'm wondering about some kind of election. So in this, they say September 11th, 2001. Huh. But as like, this is saying, well, knitting was used as part of the home front war effort in every major war. Women and men using needles, working and creating garments for the troops. Crafting has a tendency to become popular in times of natural stress, yeah. and national stress. And scholars have pinpointed the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center as one of the causes for the re-emergence of knitting as a trendy occupation in the United States. Because huh. the event created a social backlash, which left Americans feeling vulnerable, wanting new methods to get away from it. Yeah. And so... It's sort of a soothing... Yeah, yeah. that's it. So that people might have engaged in behaviours such as turning to religion, volunteering, Mm. seeking meditative opportunities, adopting new leisure pursuits, spending more time at home. Yeah. And so this is kind of where it kind of comes Mm. in. This article talks about personal benefits of knitting, so it's like a meditative thing. They talk about some people, so it's it's like it's almost zen-like quality. Mm -hmm. See, I I don't know this. I'm total knit-splaining here. Like, I don't... Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I like the new term. (laughs) (laughs) But Uh, but definitely, because you're doing the same action over and over again, it, it is quite... Relaxing, yeah, and soothing, and even the sound of the, yeah. the needles is quite well, that, relaxing. That's what they sort of say, like you know, and there's a the decrease in heart rate, slower breathing, increased manual dexterity. Yeah, apparently, sport is a therapy medium for mm. in, individuals suffering from many conditions, ranging from depression to chronic illness. There's like a sense of identity for the yeah. crafter. It can, can be good for anxiety too, in a way, because you have to relax your hands enough to be able to do it, and yeah, if you're right. too tense, yeah, it doesn't do work. <laughs> 
Yeah, and you can work on it by listening to music or a podcast. Yeah, for example. Mm, so, spot. So you know, and they talk about so there's like the value of knitted objects. There's the social benefits of knitting circles. You know, knitting allows creative opportunity that you might not get otherwise. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of do that everywhere. You can make friends by kind of you know, getting involved in knitting culture or stuff like that. And like when I was work, uh, I would go and work in a research center Mm. at a hospital nearby. And they, like I remember it was like, because it was my day off every week or so. I'd go in and try and write up some articles. And and then like these girls, like they were all just chatting. I'm like, what's going on? And they were like sitting around the table. Like it was like their knitting, their work (laughs) knitting circle. Yeah. what is going on? Like, yeah, and there's there's quite a lot in sort of pubs and bars these days. Yeah, right. Yeah. And in any our area, we have like knit bombing. Yeah. Like so, there's like around the corner from the, at my house, there's like a tree. Yeah, that's just, that's got, just like, covered in covered in yeah. stuff. So you know, and they talked about in in the interviews they did for this for this study that there was process knitters that were chiefly interested in the physical act of creating mm-hmm. versus product knitters which were concerned with the final result and less enjoyment from the actual knitting process, mm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, they talked about the expenses, what you were talking about before, yeah. and then one of the interesting was like negative reactions. So like the large proportion of knitters have been openly teased by others, yeah. and that you know a knitter could give something to someone and then like. It would yeah. be unappreciated. That would be gut-wrenching. <laughs> the um, thing that I thought was a great term, which was like there was a specific thing um, called nitivism, which is this type of activism that utilises knitting to convey political messages. Oh, it's brilliant. It, isn't that awesome? <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, that was about all I had on that thing. And then... The uh, the other article I, I won't really go into it, but there's it, also some really graphic knitting. I mean, that's just come to mind, but like people who have knitted body parts, yeah, right, and and sell them, yeah, right, and 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 then just really really quickly, like I came across a proposed RCT, so randomized control trial, to look at knitting in older women with osteoarthritis of the hands. And so there was a feasibility study that had been run with five elderly women aged 80 to 87. Mm-hmm. That 100% adherence rate during a six-week knitting intervention. Mm. And the intervention was easy to follow, blah, blah, blah. And they had the five participants had had a relief of 45 to 77% for pain and morning stiffness. Basically, their hands are being active. Yeah. And, and then that helps with osteoarthritis. Interesting. My favourite bit of it was like, four of the five participants loved to knit and had knitted in the past. The fifth participant had never knitted in her life. She did not enjoy it. <laughs> but nevertheless adhered to the program until the completion of the study. Well done, Mildred. <laughs> Mildred. <laughs> um, so, so um, yes, thank you, Knitter PhD on Twitter. And, uh, Will yeah. you take it up now that you know all these uh, amazing benefits? I don't think so. <laughs> Um, I'm also left-handed, so I imagine that that that, that was like screw it up somehow. I'd do it backwards. Mm. Always seem to no. do things backwards. No, because you're moving from left to right. Yeah, but surely but there's like a dominant side and a non-dominant side. Yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, we'll we put won't. Hunter's first scarf on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for listening, and tune in next week. We're going to talk about uh, treatment of borderline personality. We'll see you next time. See you back. Bye. Bye. Thank you.